Amen. Amen, church. Wow. What an awesome, awesome chance to worship alongside the youth group to be led by the members of Harvest Students. Praise God. Many years ago, I won't tell you how many years ago, I had a youth pastor turned senior pastor tell me the youth are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. What he meant by that is it didn't matter what age a person was, if they were a disciple of Jesus Christ, they were a part of the church. And I think sometimes we do a disservice when we think to ourselves, yes, this is the church of tomorrow. And I know what we're saying we are raising up Christian leaders for tomorrow, yes. But make no mistake, our youth and the kids downstairs and Harvest Kids, they are the church of today. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. William Ernest Henley... 1849 to 1903, was an English poet, writer, critic, editor, and avowed atheist. In 1875, he wrote his most famous poem, Invictus, and it goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unquenchable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What do you think about that, church? Is William Ernest Henley correct? Are we the masters of our fates? Are we the captains of our souls? Now I'm going to confess to you Honestly, there is an appeal to that poem. There's an appeal from my flesh. I want to, part of me wants to be the master of my faith, the captain of my soul, but is that true? Do I determine the events of my life? Do I control my own fate? Do I control my own destiny? We continue in the book of Mark as we have been for over a year now, And we've entered into the final section, the passion narrative, and here is where the plan is unfolding that Jesus has told his disciples about. He's told them about three times what's going to happen, and the events are already in motion. We saw this last week. Judas is already planning to betray Jesus. He's already gone to the chief priests, and he is even now looking for the chance to betray him. And that brings us to where we are today. But there's something interesting about our passage. Not only does it continue to unfold the passion narrative, that is the story of Jesus going to the cross, but our passage clues us into something marvelous about Jesus. And during this whole series, we've looked at Jesus' divinity and his servanthood. He is God. 
He came down to earth. He took on the body of a man and he served his people. In fact, the theme verse that summarizes the book of Mark is Mark 10.45, which reads, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, that term, we've talked about that, it captures both his humanity and his divinity. And we've seen how Jesus connects himself with the Son of Man that was prophesied in Daniel 7, who would receive power in a kingdom. But my point is this, he is divine, and we see a picture of his divinity today. We see a picture of his humanity, absolutely. But in our passage today, there's something going on that gives us a real clue as to his divinity. That is, he is divine. That is, his nature is God. What do we see here? Well, specifically, we see his sovereignty and his providence. We see his sovereignty and his providence. And I'm going to explain those terms here in a minute. But I want you to see from the text, we're going to expound three ways that Jesus is both sovereign and providential. And he illustrates those things about himself by telling his disciples exactly what's going to happen. Three times in our passage, he tells them what's going to happen. He was sovereign and providential over all of these things. And let me just say it simply, the title of today's message, God is in control. God is in control. Said simply, that's what I want to talk about, and I want to expound on three ways that God is in control, his sovereignty and his providence. So here's your first point this morning. Jesus is sovereign and providential over the details of life. Jesus is sovereign and providential over the details of life. Follow along. I'm going to go back to verse 12 of chapter 14. Follow along as I read. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to, to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, the scripture tells us it's the first day of the feast, and we talked about this last week. Passover has come. Passover was the day where the Jews remembered that in Egypt, the Lord passed over the homes where the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorpost and the lintel. The Lord passed over their houses and he spared the life of the firstborn. And the Jews remember that day. And then the next day began what they called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was to last seven days. But sometimes, and this happens in culture, sometimes the word Passover simply referred, I'm sorry, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread simply referred to the first day, that is the first day of the Passover. In fact, Mark states it clearly. He says, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And what I'm trying to clue you into is that it's Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread hasn't started yet. It is, in fact, Passover. It's the Thursday before the day that we would call Good Friday. So if we think about this, this is the last day of Jesus's life before he goes to the cross. And there were common preparations that needed to be made in order for them to commemorate the Passover meal. And that's what's going on here. Jesus, his disciples tell him, ask him, where do you want us to go and prepare the meal? And Jesus gives two of his disciples instructions on where to go. Now, Mark does not name them, but we know for the book of Luke that these are Peter and John. 
And by the way, there's something reminiscent here that we might miss. This is reminiscent of Mark chapter 11, when Jesus sends two disciples to retrieve the colt on which he was to ride into Jerusalem. Remember that story? Again, in that situation, Jesus gave them specific instructions, and they found it just as he had told them. He was in control at that time, too. Peter and John, they go into Jerusalem. Presumably, they're coming from Bethany. And they're to find a man carrying a jar of water. Now, that might not mean anything to us. In fact, if we stop and think about it, the hustle and bustle of life, how could they tell one person from another? But interestingly enough, in that culture, typically men did not carry water. Typically, that was a woman's job to carry the water. So to see a man carrying a water, it would have been a little out of place. In fact, it would have been like seeing a man today carrying a purse. Out of place. Like That would have stood out. So they would have seen that, and they would have followed him. He's presumably a servant here. And they were to go into whichever house he entered, and then they were to say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, does that seem a bit presumptuous to you? What would you do if somebody walked into your house and said, hey, where's my guest room? Your guest room is turn right around, buddy. <laughs> but this was common back then. I told you last week that the population of Jerusalem swelled during the Passover because of all the people who were traveling to the city, and it was actually expected. It was common courtesy. It was, it was culture back then to have a room ready. If you had an extra room in your house, you would have it ready for travelers to come and spend Passover there. And this house, by the way, their houses back then were extremely simple. Most of them were just a single room. If you had a room like this, a two-story room, it would have essentially been a box on top of a box. That's what the houses were back then. And if you had a room with a room on top, that was considered a pretty decent home. It was a decent home. The more, the more rich people would have homes like this. And Jesus tells the disciples it will be furnished and ready. In other words, it will have the table, it will have couches, cushions, it will have all the things that they need for the Passover. The disciples would need to purchase the food, but everything else was taken care of. Now notice verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. The disciples found it just as he had told them. How did Jesus know? Simple. Maybe not so simple, but the answer is this. Jesus is both sovereign and providential. Now I want to define those terms for you. Sovereign or sovereignty. Sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. It's God's power over all creation. Another term that we use to communicate God's sovereignty is omnipotence, all-powerful. Nothing in all of creation lies outside of his power and authority. God is supremely in control of all things. That's sovereignty. Providence is a little more nuanced it's the act of purposefully providing for, of sustaining and governing the world. John Piper puts it this way. God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things. That's providence. Providence is sovereignty with a purpose. And that purpose being to provide, sustain, and govern all of creation. Sovereignty is God's power over his creation. Providence is God's plan because of his power over creation. Are you following me? Providence is the working out of sovereignty, you could say. Think of a king. 
A king has total sovereign control over his land, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he has a plan for his sovereignty. He could be sovereign and do absolutely nothing, but that's not God. God is sovereign, and he's providential because he uses his sovereignty to enact a plan for his creation. That's providence. God's sovereign, providential hand is involved in every area of mine and your life. Do you believe that? I'm going to share with you something. Many of you already know this, that Heather and I were unable to have children. We tried for many years. Were we in control? Were we the masters of our fate? Absolutely not. God was in sovereign, providential control of that aspect of our lives. And although that was and still is a very painful part of our story, God had a reason for it. He had many reasons for it. He had four specific reasons for it. And we have a beautiful story of four precious children that we, are, that we adopted because we couldn't have children. That was God's plan. He was in control. Now, someone might say out there, you know, well, that's a big thing. That's a big plan, right? Okay, I can see God being in the big things, but you're saying God's in the everyday details. Okay, you know what? Every time I lean on the Lord for wisdom and strength in parenting, he's there. Every time I lean on the Lord for wisdom and strength in witnessing, he's there. In my marriage, he's there. In relationships, his hand is there. You know, try this. If you, at the end of your day, lay your head on your pillow and think back over your day, you can see where God was at work in your life. He is in the details. God is in the details of our lives. And if you still don't believe me, his word actually says so. Look at Psalm 139.16, which reads, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. He's the, the author is saying, Before I was born, you had my days plotted out. God is in the details. What does this mean for us? It means we can rest. It means we don't have to worry or fret or be anxious about life. Even in the details, God is sovereign. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What are those things? They are the normal, day-to-day, humdrum details of life. Eating, drinking, clothing, God's got them all. Don't be anxious is what Jesus is saying. Now, why do we have such a problem obeying that? Why is it so easy to get anxious? Why do we do it? You know, it's one thing to read a command like this in Scripture. It's another thing to obey it. So why is it easy to get anxious? Why is it over the normal, everyday things of life? Well, let's take a step back and ask this question. What is anxiety? Do you know what it is? It's that emotion that we feel when our eyes are taken off of God. It's simply that. Anxiety is the emotion that we feel when our eyes are taken off of God. It's the opposite of peace. Anxiety is the lack of confidence in God. Said simply, it's unbelief. When do you feel anxious? When you do, 
it's because you are doubting something about God. Doubting that he's going to provide. Doubting that he's going to be present. Doubting that he will prevail. You are doubting something about God. When you're anxious, let me challenge you. Take inventory of what, may, what wrong idea you might be believing. Take inventory of what you are disbelieving about God. Ask yourself, where am I, what am I failing to believe about God here? Ask the Holy Spirit, where am I doubting you? And then simply confess that and say, say out loud if you need to, Lord, I trust you, help my unbelief. Do this, even in the details of your life. Don't just come to God over the big things. He's concerned about those for sure, but come to him over the details. He wants you to. Jesus is sovereign and providential over the details of life. Secondly, Jesus is sovereign and providential over the plans of man. Let's continue this in verse 17. And when it was evening... He came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Have you ever been at a family meal, everything was going great, and then somebody dropped a bomb? I mean, you talk about boom, suddenly the mood just drops. A couple interesting things I want to point out here. First of all, Mark says that it's evening, and the 12, that is Jesus' disciples, are going with him to this upper room. What's interesting about that? There's no crowd. How many times have we read, and there's a crowd, there's a crowd, there's a crowd. There's no crowd. This is a special night. Jesus has orchestrated this night to be just with his most intimate followers, the 12. And they go to this upper room. They're reclining. I told you last week when they would eat, they would face the food with their upper body. They would lay on their side, and they would face their feet specifically away from the food. They're reclining, and they're eating the Passover meal, and Jesus drops this bomb. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, we may not see the intensity of that right away, but back in this day, to eat with someone was to accept them. It was an indication of friendship. It was an indication of intimacy. So this would have been an unthinkable act. For a Jew to think... To be betrayed by someone they're eating with, that was unthinkable. And Jesus also, by the way, he might be alluding here to Psalm 41.9, which reads, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The disciples react as one might expect. The word in verse 9 is sorrowful, and that's a pretty good interpretation. The Greek word means sadness. It means distress. It's grief. They are shaken by this news. And one by one, they approach Jesus. And the text says, is it I? They're asking him. But a better translation would be, surely not I. It's actually asked, asked in such a way that it expects a negative answer. We're even told in the book of Matthew that Judas asked Jesus, surely not I, Rabbi. And likely he did that to keep up appearances. But the point is, they are thunderstruck. They're absolutely shocked by this. 
And Jesus repeats in verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. They would have had a dish of herbs that they would have dipped bread in. And this just emphasizes again the vileness of this action in light of the fact that Jesus was eating with his betrayer. It was an intimate friend who was planning on betraying him. Jesus continues in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now in this one verse, we have a mind-blowing combination of two theological truths. In this verse, we have free will and God's sovereignty. One verse, free will, God's sovereignty. First, Jesus says, for the Son of Man, again, he uses that title, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, Jesus is going to follow the plan set forth by the Father as has been written from the, in the Old Testament, as has been set in motion since the foundation of the world. The sovereignty of God is at work here. Jesus is fulfilling the plan to go to the cross. It's all been written. All throughout the Old Testament, it prophesied of this event. One, exa- one example is Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Sovereignty of God is at play here. Jesus knew that this was the plan, and he walked in it willingly according to the preordained, sovereign, providential plan of the Father. And yet, at the same time, Jesus says, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Judas had free choice here. He had free choice to betray Jesus or not. Judas was personally responsible for his actions. Did God have a divine purpose being carried out beneath Judas's actions? Absolutely. Was Judas responsible for his choice to betray Jesus? Absolutely. How can those two ideas meet in our minds? I'm not sure they can. I heard a pastor say one time, sovereignty and free will are two parallel tracks that somehow meet in eternity. But even so, let's ask ourselves a question. We have sovereignty here. We have free will here. What is free will? We define sovereignty. Let's define free will. We need to define this because we can assume by saying free will that we have the ability to do anything. Is that the right definition? Do I have free will to choose what to eat for lunch? I do. Do I have free will to submit to God or choose to sin? I do if I'm a Christian. Do I have the free will to do anything outside of God's providential control? No. Why? Because everything is under God's providential control. If by free will we mean that we are outside of God's providential control, then that would mean we would not exist because everything is under God's providential control. It's inside of his control. So what do we mean then by free will? Free will best means this. We are free to make willing choices within God's providential control. We are free to make willing choices within God's providential control. We are, by the way, the freest of all God's creatures. We are. And still, our freedom lies within the bounds of his providential control. So I can choose what I want to eat for dinner. But even in those details, my life is not outside of God's providential control. Now, many of you might 
still be scratching your heads. How does this work? I'll be honest, I'm still scratching my head on this. How does this work? I can't explain the ins and outs of it. And there's no perfect illustration of how free will and God's sovereignty work together. But A.W. Tozer used this illustration to help us try to grasp this concept. This is on the screen. It's lengthy, but follow along as I read. An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the liner are scores of passengers. They are not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they do not contradict. So it is, I I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God, the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps us steady the course over the sea of history. Perfect picture? No. Fair picture? Yes. Now, what do we do with all this? God's sovereign providential control extends even over the plans of man, even over his enemies. That word woe in verse 21 is a word of divine judgment. When Judas chose to betray Jesus, he doomed his own soul. Jesus said it would be actually better for him if he had not been born. Now, that seems kind of harsh, but actually, that was a statement of lament. Job says something similar in Job 3.3. He says, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man was conceived. It's a lament, but it's also a judgment, a better judgment than hell. Believe it or not, Jesus is saying here, hell Eternal punishment and judgment from God is far worse than never having existed. It is far better to have never existed than to live apart from God and spend eternity without him. But the point that's being made here is that Jesus is providential and sovereign even over the plans of men, even over the enemy's plans. The enemies of God are at work against him. All who oppose God, and beneath that, think of this, all the spiritual forces that are at work right now are opposed to God, but they're still all subjected to God. They still all fall within his control. So my brothers and sisters, this means for you and I, we need not fear what man can do. We need not fear what Satan can do. Because God is is in complete control. Psalm 37, 1 through 2 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus. Yes, Judas was completely and totally responsible and liable for his decision, and yet God was completely and totally sovereign and providential. He was in control even of these moments. And that means that any work of man against you is ultimately under the complete and total authority of God. And I am saying with this that when things go bad, when people work against you, when circumstances turn ugly, when everything just falls apart behind all the evil motives, behind all the plans of man, 
behind all the works of Satan himself, God is completely and totally in control. Back to Job real quick. Who allowed Satan to do his worst to that man? God did. Who allowed Satan to take everything from him? God did. Who allowed Satan to afflict his flesh with boils? God did. Who allows the pain and the turmoil and the suffering and the atrocities and the failures and the tragedies of life? God does. Deuteronomy 32:39 says, "See now that I even I am he, and there is no god beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand." Am I saying that God is against you? Oh no. He is for you. He is for you in ways that you could never comprehend. He is working all things together for good. He will never let the righteous be shaken. He will not abandon his people. He will never give you more than you can handle. He will never leave or forsake you. He is with you always to the end of the age. What we should walk away from this is not fear, but faith, but comfort. Don't fear man. Proverbs 69 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Don't think for a moment that the sin done against you is outside the sovereign providential hand of the Lord. No, God does not want the sin to happen against you, but it's not outside of his sovereign providential hand. And don't think for a moment that it is God who is sinning against you. James 1.5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Again, how do we marry these two ideas in our mind? I'm not sure that we can. But what am I saying? I am saying, when someone sins against you, when circumstances cause you pain, when things fall apart, what are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to take it? We're supposed to take it because ultimately this is from the Lord. You know, there's not an easy answer to that. The situations and the details and the events that happen, they're all different for all of us and different throughout our lives. And sometimes we need to push back and other times we simply need to accept what's happening. It just all depends. But what I am trying to get across is this. God is in control. Take comfort in that and don't let fear of others disrupt your faith. Think of this. Jesus did not retaliate against Judas. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He had 11 other men in that room. How easy would it have been for him to say, bind that man before he goes out and betrays me? But he didn't do it. Beyond that, Jesus says himself in the garden, he has 10,000 legions of angels that he could call at any moment. Could Jesus have stopped Judas? Easy. But he didn't. He trusted the plan. My friends, trust in the plan that God has for you. Take comfort in the plan that God has for you. When all goes wrong, you are still in the hands of almighty, sovereign, providential God. He's got you. Take this. 
take this truth and think through your life. Think through your life and what's going on right now. Think of the circumstances that you are facing right now and ask yourself this. How can I trust God? How can I turn from fear to faith? Ask him for the faith that you need to believe that he is in control even over the circumstances of whatever you're facing right now. Last point this morning. We're looking at God's sovereign and providential control, and the last point is this. Jesus is sovereign and providential even over his and our destiny. Even over destiny. It says in verse 22, and they were eating, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This passage is, of course, where Jesus inaugurates communion, and it is expanded in the other gospels. Mark simplifies the events that are going on that night, but there's a few things that I want to point out. The text tells us that Jesus took bread and broke it and passed it around and then told the disciples it was his body. This is a symbol of what Jesus is about to do. He is about to have his body broken. Now, none of his bones were broken, okay? Psalm 34:20 prophesied none of his bones would be broken, but his flesh was torn. It was torn with the nails, it was torn with the thorns, it was torn with the whips. But there's something else here. The bread in this passage is also a symbol of our unity in him. He says, take, this is my body, this is me. I am with you, I am in you, I unite you. The bread is a symbol of Jesus' enduring presence within us, uniting us as his body. The cup also, the cup of wine represents his blood. And of course, his blood is about to be spilled for the sins of many. But again, there's something powerful here. We might miss it. This was a communal cup. It was passed around and each would have drunk from it. I know many of you are thinking, ew, but that's the way it worked back then. And it's a symbol of communal relationship. What one takes in, they all take in, germs and all. This is a way of accepting each other. They are saying, what happens to you happens to me. David E. Garland, in his commentary on this, writes, Drinking the cup of someone meant entering into a communion relationship with that person to the point that one shared that person's destiny good or ill. This is significant. Communion is a way to remember Christ's death. Absolutely. I'm not going to argue that. That's what we do. But by taking it together as the body, we are symbolically demonstrating our unity in Christ. And so this should ignite a passion within us for one another. You have no closer family than the church closer than blood, united by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask a question. 
How are you treating your family? Just let that question settle. Jesus goes on in verse 25, and this is the point that I'm trying to make. He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In this verse, Jesus is saying that he's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine, that is a reference to wine, until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that he's not going to participate in communion again until the kingdom of God is established. Jesus inaugurates communion and he's going to end communion. Presumably, Jesus is speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb that's talked about in Revelation 9. I'm going to read this for you. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. One day, all Christians will be seated in the, at the heavenly marriage supper of the Lamb. We will all partake of the bread and the cup together with Christ on his throne. And this, by the way, makes communion a twofold symbol. We take communion looking back to Christ's death, and we should, his atonement for our sins, but we should also be looking forward to the inevitable return when he will take communion again with all of us present at his table. This means that though the meal in Mark 14 was solemn, even grievous, there's a note of hope. Jesus is stating his return and the establishment of his kingdom. Jesus is looking ahead as to what's to come and how can he do that? Because he has total control of his and our destiny. He is in total control of the outcome of human and divine history. Though Judas has moved to betray him, though the religious leaders have conspired to kill him, though Satan himself desires to destroy him, Jesus is still in complete control. And he's saying, it's not going to end here, guys. A future is coming. And you and I should take joy in this. We should take joy in the fact that we are not in control of our own destiny. We are not in control of our own fate. We are not the captains of our soul. And why should we take joy in that? Seems like that's robbing me. Why should I joy in that? Here's why we should joy in that. Because you and I would make a horrible mess of it. If we were in, let's just be honest. Man left to his own devices brings destruction, not healing. The entire Bible speaks to this. Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Cain kills Abel. Rampant wickedness brings a flood. Abraham fails. Isaac fails. Jacob fails. And on and on and on and on it goes. Do you want to be the master of your fate? Do you want to be the captain of your soul? There's only one outcome when we try to take the mantle of our own destiny and that outcome is complete and total separation from God in hell 
forever. By the way, where are you at today? Are you living like you're the captain of your fate? Honest question, how's that going? How much control do you actually have? You don't even know what's going to happen when you step out of this building. Instead, won't you surrender to Jesus? Won't you turn from doing life your way, from being the captain of your soul, and let Jesus be the captain of your soul? You might think, how do I do that? It's simple. Confess your need for him. Confess that you're a sinner and accept his offer of salvation. Believe in the work that he did on the cross and the grave, and the Bible says you'll be saved. And if you want to know more, come and talk to me after service. Christian, what can we do with this? I recommend the next time that you take communion, which will be here in just a few minutes, don't just remember his death. But remember that he's coming back. That you're going to have a chance to do this in heaven with him. But also remember this. Jesus, knowing his followers were about to face great fear, knowing that they were about to run from him and flee from him and hide from him, he gives them a glimmer of hope in the kingdom. He is in control and will bring about the outcome that he promised. He will return. He will sit on his throne. He will drink from the cup once more. And he's saying that to them. He's giving them that glimmer of hope. So Christian, speak that to yourself. Speak it to yourself when you're facing your struggles in everyday life, when life throws you a curveball, when hope seems lost. Comfort yourself with the return of Jesus Christ. This is temporary. And in compared to eternity, it is so temporary. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself that one day you will drink of the cup with him. But don't just remind yourself Use this as a comfort to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, just after he tells them that we will be with those who died, Paul writes this, therefore encourage one another with these words. The coming of our Lord Jesus, the reuniting of loved ones, the glorification of our bodies, all of that should be words of comfort to one another. And I understand timing is involved. We don't just walk up to a grieving person and say, don't worry, Jesus is coming. Sometimes we need to be tactful, yes, but use this as a way to minister to your brothers and sisters. The Lord is coming, and he's going to set all things right. You know, this last section, verses 22 through 25, there's something here I haven't addressed. This is a beautiful, mind-boggling passage. It really is because Jesus is reinventing the Passover. Believe it or not, you and I still celebrate the Passover. We just call it communion. Jesus is inaugurating communion here, but the meaning of the Passover is still here. It's not the blood of a lamb that causes God to pass over now. It's the blood of the lamb. It's the blood of his own son that causes him to pass over your sin and mine. We 
are Judas. Every one of us, we've rejected him, we've betrayed him, we took God's gifts and threw them back into his face. We scorned the precious gift of his presence. We despised the innocence of the Garden of Eden. And in return, he pours out his cleansing blood so that you and I, traitors to the king, could be forgiven and made new. The truth is, for those who believe, there are times that we still act like traitors. We still scorn him and betray him every time we turn to something else for satisfaction other than him. For Judas, it was money. What is it for you? What do you turn to instead of Christ? Where do you turn when you betray the all-satisfying presence of God? Do you want freedom for that? Then look to your Savior. Look to the cross. Look to the length at which he went, knowing full well it would cost him his very life, and he did all that for you. Contemplate that. Contemplate that every day. And that will shatter our idols. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Really? Interestingly enough, William Ernest Henley influenced another writer and social activist named Dorothy Day. In her early years, Dorothy was a self-styled anarchist and communist. But in 1927, she had a dramatic conversion to Christ. And although I don't agree with everything that Dorothy Day stood for, she did have a passion for Jesus and a passion for the church. And she wrote a response poem to Henley's Invictus. She entitled that poem, Conquered, and it goes like this. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid that spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Lord Jesus, you are master, you are captain. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that despite that you knew what was going to happen, you knew you were going to be betrayed, you followed the plan. You were not swayed from staying the course. Thank you that you were in complete and total control. 
You love us, and you are in the details of life. You are in control even over the plans of man. You hold our destiny in your mighty hands. We can rest in you. Praise Jesus. Help us to follow you knowing that you hold us. Help us to experience your unexplainable peace amid whatever we face. We pray this in your sovereign name, the name of Jesus. Amen.